0: Hi, hello, and welcome to this episode of The Lives and Styles of Old Hollywood. This episode is on Betty Davis. And Betty Davis was one hell of a woman. Fierce, strong-minded and opinionated, and one of the 25 most important actresses of classic American cinema. She was also the first actress to receive 10 Academy Award nominations, and in the end she won two of the statues – Her feud with Joan Crawford made headlines for years and her love life was just as interesting as her career. Her trademarks were her mesmerizing eyes that even inspired a 1980s hit and her chain-smoking habit. So, as usual, let's start at the beginning. Ruth Elizabeth Davis was born on April 5th in 1908 in Lowell, Massachusetts. She changed her nickname Betty to Betty in honor to honorate Balzac's novel The Cousin Betty with an E at the end. Her father was a patent attorney in Massachusetts and divorced mother Ruth when the kids were still young. At age eight, Ruth and her younger sister Barbara Harriet were enrolled in a Spartan boarding school and later at Cushing Academy. In 1921, the family moved to New York into an apartment on Broadway when the mother used the tuition money of her daughters to enroll herself into the Clarence White School of Photography. Subsequently, she worked as a portrait photographer. In New York City, Betty would attend the Robert Milton School of Theatre and Dance alongside classmate Lucille Ball, two ladies that I actually wouldn't have pictured together. In New York, Betty also became a Girl Scout, something that definitely had an impact on her and her leading style and the way she interacted with people, although that is my opinion only. In 1926, Betty saw a production of The Wild Duck by Henrik Ibsen and it was leading lady Peck Entwistle that inspired Betty to audition with Eva Le Gallien to be a student at her theatre. But Le Gallien was not convinced of Davis and her attitude. She even called her insincere and frivolous. Instead, Betty Davis got an engagement by George Cooke's Stock Theatre Company for one week. After performing in Philadelphia, Washington and Boston, she finally made her Broadway debut in 1929 at age 21 in Broken Dishes and followed it up with a role in a play Solid South. In 1930, at age 22, and inspired by Mary Pickford's role in Little Lord Fondleroy, Betty Davis moved to Hollywood to screen test for Universal Studios. Accompanying her on the train was Mother Ruth. When Betty arrived in L.A., a trying time was ahead of her. First, nobody was there to meet her at the station. The Universal employee left because he didn't see anyone fitting the description of an actress or a starlet. Next, she failed her screen test. Another screen test in nineteen thirty-one for *A House Divided* also failed. Head of Universal Studios, Carl Lemle actually considered letting Betty Davis go, but Carl Freund, a cinematographer, backed Betty up pointed out her great eyes and that she would be perfect for the movie Bad Sister. And that is exactly the movie Betty Davis made her screen debut in. But the movie was not a success. Neither was the next, Seed, in which Betty's role was too small to catch any attention from critics or audiences. After a series of multiple other unsuccessful movies, Universal did not renew her contract. Davis was already preparing to go back to New York, when George Arliss, producer, director and actor, chose Davis to star in a movie The Man Who Played God opposite himself for Warner Brothers, and this is when Davis's stars started to rise and shine. The Saturday Evening Post wrote about her performance, "She is not only beautiful, but she bubbles with charm." This movie got Davis a 5-year contract with Warner Brothers, and she would stay with the studio for the following 18 years. After starring in about 20 movies of more or less critical acclaim, Davis finally landed the leading role of a prostitute in Of Human Bondage in 1934, based on a novel by Moe. Several actresses had turned down the role because it was an unsympathetic character and they feared for their images. Betty, on the other hand, loved the challenge and the chance to show off the range of her acting. This was also the first time Betty Davis was partnered with Leslie Howard, which later got her on board for The Petrified Forest with Humphrey Bogart in 1936. The critics actually went wild about Of Human Bondage, and Live magazine wrote the following, probably the best performance ever recorded on the screen by a US actress. Nevertheless, Davis was not nominated for an Academy Award, much to the surprise of fellow actors and actresses, It was award nominee Norma Shearer that started a campaign to get Davis nominated. This led to the one and only time that the Academy allowed the consideration of an actor or actress that has not been officially nominated for an award. This actually led to a change in the voting system that has since been supervised by Price Waterhouse. When it comes to the Academy Award, Betty Davis confirmed that it was her that gave the Academy Award of Merit its nickname, Oscar, as its butt resembled that of a husband, whose middle name was Oscar. Although the Academy maintains that it was the Academy's executive director, Margaret Herrick, who coined the name, as the statue resembled her Uncle Oscar, I rather go with Betty's version. It is much more entertaining. Betty Davis continued her rise to Hollywood stardom, with the movie Marked Woman in 1937 and Jezebel in 1938. The latter did not only get her a second Academy Award, but also the speculation of getting the part of Scarlet in Gone with the Wind. Although audiences favoured her for the role, David O. Selznick did not think that she was suitable, so the role went to Vivian Leigh instead, who received an Oscar for her performance. With Jezebel began the most successful phase of Betty Davis' career. Dark Victory with co-stars Ronald Reagan and Humphrey Bogart, The Old Maid, Juarez and The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex followed. The last, The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, was her first colour movie. And Betty Davis dug fully into the role, and she even shaved her hairline and eyebrows to resemble the English ruler. During the filming, fellow actor Charles Laughton said the following words to her that would inspire her for the rest of her life. Never not dare to hang yourself. That's the only way you grow in your profession. You must continually attempt things that you think are beyond you or you get into a complete rut. By that time, Betty Davis was Warner Brothers' most bankable star and her roles and the way she was filmed was considered with great care. All this in heaven too, as well as the latter, were critically praised and solid box office hits. Then the war years started. Betty Davis and fellow actor John Garfield were the driving forces for bringing the Hollywood canteen to life with the help of 42 unions and guilds in the entertainment industry and thousands of celebrity volunteers. Davis served as president of the canteen until the end of the war and would receive the Distinguished Civilian Service Medal for her work. The Hollywood canteen was serving food and entertainment for soldiers during World War II. The Warriors also led Bette Davis to star in other movies than she usually would have done. The audiences were looking for more light-hearted and romantic material. Thus, Betty Davis starred in such movies like Now Voyager, Watch on the Rhine and Thank Your Lucky Stars. After some profitable movies, including Mr. Skeffington and The Corner Screen, Davis's movies began to lose money, as well as praise from the critics – her final movie role for Warner Brothers was Beyond the Forest in 1949 and Hedda Hopper wrote about her role. If Betty had deliberately set out to wreck her career, she could not have picked a more appropriate vehicle. After that, Betty Davis became a freelance actress. In 1951, she starred in All About Eve, the role which Claudette Colbert had yearned to play but was unable to because of her back injury. All About Eve was a massive success and Davis got nominated for and won several awards at the Cannes Film Festival, the New York Film Critics Circle Award, as well as the San Francisco Film Critics Circle Award. She was also asked that year to leave her handprints in the forecourt of the Crowman's Chinese Theatre. Most of Betty Davis's movies from the 1950s were unsuccessful, as was her Broadway revue Two's Company. So Betty Davis tried television. Her first appearance was in 1956 on General Electric Theatre, with subsequent roles on Wagon Train, a popular NBC Western, in 1959 and 1961. She followed them up with a Perry Mason episode in which she covered for Raymond Burr during his convalescence from surgery in 1962, as well as with an appearance on a TV Western, The Virginian. Hungry for more film work, she placed an ad in Variety magazine that read... Mother of three, aged ten, eleven, and fifteen, divorcee, American, thirty years' experience as an actress in motion pictures, mobile still, and more affable than rumor would have it. One steady employment in Hollywood has had Broadway, and it actually got her back into the headlines, and her comeback lasted several years. One of her late successes was Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, probably one of her most famous movies, even to those only slightly interested in old Hollywood. In this movie, as outlined in my episode of Joan Crawford, Davis and Crawford play sisters, with Davis being a former child star and Crawford portraying an accomplished film actress, who now have to share a mansion. The film was heavily promoted with the Crawford-Davis feud that had had the magazines gossiping away. Of course, the movie became a massive success and got the careers both of Carol Ford and Davis back on track. Its sequel, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, was filmed without Crawford, but with a veteran cast that included Joseph Cotton, Mary Astor, Agnes Moorhead and Olivia de Havilland. And this movie as well was a success. In the 1970s, Davis was part of a stage presentation in New York City called Great Ladies of the American Cinema. Alongside her, Myrna Loy, Rosalind Russell, Lana Turner, Sylvia Sidney and Sean Crawford answered questions from the audience. Better Davis took this format to Australia and the UK called Better Davis in person and on film. And of course, it was a success. Other than that, she filmed several pilots that never made it to sitcom and supporting roles in a variety of movies. She got back into demand when receiving the American Film Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award and again in 1981 when Kim Carnes sung Betty Davis's Eyes, which became a worldwide hit and the best-selling record of 1981. Betty Davis continued her work on television, and I was especially excited to read that she filmed the pilot episode of the television series Hotel in 1983. Because I have watched this series and I loved it. Connie Zaleka was my idol back then. And by the way, Anne Baxter, lifelong friend of Betty Davis, was also part of this cast. Just when Davis filmed Hotel, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and got a mastectomy. Within two weeks of the surgery, Davis had four strokes that left her left side paralyzed and slurred her speech. It took several months for her to gain partial recovery, but still... Even at this age and with this ailment, Betty Davis smoked up to 100 cigarettes a day. In the following years, she appeared very often in talk shows, with the likes of Larry King, Joan Rivers and David Letterman. People loved to see her and listen to her being bitchy and feisty. Betty Davis collapsed during the American Cinema Awards in 1989. The cancer had returned. She recovered enough to travel to Spain – but her health deteriorated rapidly. She got rushed to France, to the American hospital in Paris, and died there on October the 6th, 1989, at 81 years old. She was interred in Los Angeles with mother Ruthie and sister Bobby. Her tombstone reads, She did it the hard way, which was a comment Joseph Mankiewicz made about Betty shortly after filming All About Eve. Well, Betty Davis was a very opinionated and strong-minded person and had several feuds. First, with Miriam Hopkins. Betty Davis was paired with Miriam Hopkins for the 1943 movie Old Acquaintance and constantly felt that Hopkins tried to upstage her. Apparently, there was intense tension, competition and animosity between the two actresses. And apparently, Davis did not hold back when the script ordered her to shake Hopkins. The second feud that made headlines was with Warner Brothers. When Betty was becoming a star, she was starting to make star demands. She wanted to film Mary of Scotland for RKO, but Warner Brothers refused. Instead, they chose God's Country and the Woman as her next movie. But Stubborn Davis did not want to do this movie, and when production started, she simply refused to work. Instead, she demanded an increase of salary on her contract. At that time, she was earning $1,250 and was offered double that amount. But again, she refused. She demanded $3,500 a week, which today, adjusted for inflation, would be roughly $77,000. On top of that, she was asking for all rights to make outside pictures. While production on the Warner Brothers movie was halted, costs for the studio increased as it was shot in Technicolor and all cameras were on loan. On top of that, Davis, in the middle of this dispute, went on vacation to Britain with her husband – Although claiming it was a vacation, she signed a contract with a British production company set to make a movie with Maurice Chevalier for a $50,000 salary. Warner Brothers filed a lawsuit for breach of contract and eventually won, because the court didn't see any other reason for Davis than greed and warn for more money. Davis had to pay a fine to Warner Brothers and cover all legal fees. The press had a field day calling her overpaid and ungrateful in the process. Another co star that Betty Davis alienated was Robert Montgomery. Montgomery was Davis's co star in June Bride in 1948, and she described him as a male Miriam Hopkins, an excellent actor, but addicted to scene stealing. The next feud was with Joan Crawford. This is a long and winding one and went on until their deaths. It all started in 1933, when Joan Crawford's divorce from Hollywood prince Douglas Fairbanks Jr. overshadowed Betty Davis' movie release. Instead of writing about Davis, entire pages were devoted to the divorce. Two years later, in 1935, Joan Crawford married Franchot Tone, the man Betty Davis had fallen for during filming of Dangerous. In 1936, when Betty was receiving her Academy Award, she had just put on an old costume, a plain a navy dress, as she was not expecting to win. Joan said to her with a sneer when she received the statue, Oh dear Betty, what a lovely frock! The lead roles in Possessed and Mildred Pierce were originally scripted with Davis in mind, but went to Crawford, and Crawford even won an Oscar for it. So, these two ladies were very much alike, although they detested each other. In 1952, Betty Davis starred in The Star, which was a thinly wailed, very unflattering depiction of Crawford as a washed-up actress. Davis was very keen on playing this part. And finally, in 1962, Davis and Crawford were paired for the only time ever in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. The most infamous scenes of the feud took place there, as I already outlined in my episode on Chum Crawford. Davis hit Crawford so hard, according to some reports, that it required stitches. And in another scene, Crawford was making herself as heavy as possible with the help of rocks in her pockets and a weightlifter's belt and ruined one scene after the other to force Davis to have to drag her several times across the room until she was in utter agony from back pain. When filming wrapped and the Academy Awards were handed out, Betty Davis was the one nominated. But Crawford was the one accepting the Academy Award for Anne Bancroft, who was absent. All in all, these two were in each other's lives and shared a lot of things, even the fate of awful memoirs of ungrateful daughters. Speaking of the daughter, yes, Betty Davis had a feud with the daughter, Barbara Hyman. Hyman published the book, My Mother's Keeper, in 1985, without letting Davis know about the publication beforehand. And in the book, Hyman details a very complex and very complicated mother-daughter relationship, which leaves a bad image of Betty Davis, chronicling and depicting scenes of drunken and erratic behavior. Many friends and journalists discredited Hyman, and Davis herself wrote in her second memoir, This and That, in 1987, that she would never recover from this treason by her own daughter, and that it had been easier to overcome cancer and her stroke-inflicted paralysis than this. Subsequently, she never spoke to her daughter ever again, and neither did her son Michael. Davis disinherited Hyman completely. Two important friendships in the life of Betty Davis were Anne Baxter, the woman she met on the set of All About Eve, and they became lifelong friends almost immediately. And the second important connection in her life was with Catherine Cermak. Catherine Sermak was a longtime assistant to Bette Davis and probably her closest companion. She had been asked by Davis herself to write Miss D and Me, live with the invincible Bette Davis, about the years that they had spent together. Sermak is together with Bette's son Michael Merrill, executor of her estate, and together with him established the Bette Davis Foundation that grants college scholarships to promising actors and actresses. But now we come to the interesting part. What about Better Davis's relationships? So, first we have Harmon O. Nelson, husband number one. Beta Davis met her first husband, Harmon, at Cushing Academy when she was a teenager at about 17-18 years old. They married on August 18 in 1932 in Yuma, Arizona, when Bette was 24 years old. The marriage was strained due to the financial inequality. Davis was earning 10 times as much as Ham. Corrected for inflation, she was earning roughly $80,000 per week and he only about $2,000. He actually didn't allow Betty to buy a house because he wanted to be the one providing it. Betty apparently was pregnant several times during the marriage but had chosen to have abortions. The relationship faltered when Betty Davis got more and more successful while Nelson was not able to establish a career for himself. When Nelson found out about Davis having an affair with Howard Hughes, he filed for divorce in 1938. Another affair that Bette Davis had was with director William Wyler. Davis would later describe Wyler as the love of her life and that filming Jezebel in 1938 with him as director was the time in her life of her most perfect happiness. Another affair was with George Brent. Betty Davis had an affair with fellow actor and former co-star George Brand when she was at the top of her career. He even proposed marriage to her. But Davis refused, as she was about to marry Arthur Farnsworth, husband number two. And this will become juicy. Arthur Farnsworth was a New England innkeeper and he married at Home Ranch in Arizona in December 1940. Not even three years later, on August 25 in 1943, farnsworth died and the cause of death is quite interesting because he died of several head injuries some of them inflicted by davis herself so what happened his first head injury happened in july of that very year when he and davis visited his family according to davis farnsworth slipped and fell down the stairs the second injury apparently happened during their train ride back home when they argued over Bettis Affair with director Winston Sherman. And on August 23rd, two days before his death, Farnsworth fell and hit his head on the pavement after having lunch with Davis. As he was quite disoriented after the fall, he was brought to the hospital with very high fever and hemorrhages. Two days later, he was dead. The cause of death? A skull fracture. Davis concealed the two last injuries and told the police only about the fall in July. The police did not buy that story and opened a criminal investigation. Although Davis's next husband, William Crancherry, would later tell that Davis had admitted to him to have forcefully shoved Farnsworth and thus caused the last fatal fall, Davis testified that she knew of no event that might have caused the injury. Well, it is highly likely that Jack Warner of Warner Brothers – had had a hand in making this scandal go away quickly because charges were dropped. Witnesses claim that Davis was not very emotional during the funeral of her husband, called towards his family and only showed signs of grief when being aware of being watched. Winston Sherman, who was the cause for the second head injury of husband number two, and Betty Davis had an onset affair during the filming of old acquaintance. Ironically, Sherman also had a 3-year relationship with Joan Crawford, Betty Davis's nemesis. Well, next comes Louis A. Riley. He was an American millionaire who had been known as a lover of Betty Davis when she was a member of the Hollywood canteen. After the passing of husband number 2, Arthur Farnsworth, Corporal Louis A. Riley took Betty Davis to dinners and was the escort to most of her outings. It only made headlines, though, once she traveled to Alabama to meet him instead of heading to a New Hampshire farmhouse. She even visited the fort he was stationed at and was lauded by the soldiers. Riley would later marry Dolores del Rio in Acapulco. Then came husband number three, William Grant Sherry. Sherry was an artist and a masseur on the side. Betty loved that he had never heard of her and wasn't interested in Hollywood and was definitely not intimidated by her. They had a daughter in 1947 when Davis was 39 years old, Barbara Davis Sherry. The couple divorced in July 1950. A mere 25 days later, Betty Davis married Gary Merrill on July 25, 1950. They had met on the set of All About Eve that same year and had started an affair right away. Merrill adopted Davis' daughter Barbara and adopted two more kids together with Davis, Margaret Mosher Merrill and Michael Merrill. Margaret actually was later diagnosed with a severe brain injury that she must have sustained during or shortly after birth, and she was placed in an institute around the age of three. Davis' daughter Barbara later noted that Davis and Merrill started arguing often and reported about incidents of alcohol abuse and domestic violence. In 1960, Betty Davis finally filed for divorce. But Betty Davis is also said to have had affairs with Johnny Mercer, Clanford, Ford, Gilbert Rowland, Anatole Litvak, French Oton, the one that Joan Crawford stole from her, Bob Taplinger, and Jake Young. So, a lot of man in Betty Davis' life. When it comes to Betty Davis' style, it's the whole package. Actually, Betty Davis had no particular style of dressing. She was always dressed in the latest fashions of the 1930s and 40s, always traumatic with faux fur, gloves, pillbox hats, mesmerizing eyes, and pencil thin eyebrows. But she had a tremendous presence, a strong style that was always there in all her films, no matter what she wore, on screen or off. It was the way she carried herself, the way she walked into the room, the way she talked and commanded attention, the way she watched people, and the way she lit her beloved cigarettes. It was this no-nonsense poise of self-esteem, the quality of fighting for what is right, the maintenance of authenticity. You cannot achieve this just by dressing the part. And some miscellaneous facts about Betty Davis – Davis was the first female president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, but she wanted to fill the role with more action and with more responsibility and not just be a figurehead. Thus, she clashed with the members of the Academy with her fresh manners and her radicality. She resigned and was succeeded by Walter Wanger. And another fun fact, Davis had a loyal following amongst the gay subculture and inspired many female impersonators. Journalist Jim Emerson tried to find a reason for this in the following excerpt of his writing. Was she just a camp figurehead because her brittle, melodramatic style of acting hadn't aged well? Or was it that she was larger than life, a tough broad who had survived? Probably some of both. So, this is the very interesting life of Betty Davis. And as per usual, there are lessons to be learned from this incredible lady. First, always be authentically yourself. The world loves an original. And the more authentic you can be to yourself and to all those around you, the better. Second, have your own back and persevere through bad times and failures. Knowing that you can get what you want when you stick to it. Betty Davis had a rough start. She failed her screen tests. She was even said to have no sex appeal, which she overheard. And she was criticized for everything. Her success was not like one straight line, it had ups and downs. She had great successes, great failures. She was hailed by critics and she was panned by critics. You just have to stick with what you want and what you want to do and just sail through the storms that you will meet along the way. Third, style is as much a matter of what you wear as it is about how you wear it. How you present yourself and what you do with your body, with your presence, with your confidence is what matters just as much as the clothes that fit you well. And a fourth lesson. You will make enemies along the way. And that is okay. Not everybody can like you. And Betty Davis is one of those people who embraced that. She was herself. She had an opinion. And if she had an opinion on you, she had it. And she was fine with alienating some people. And you should be too. Because you can only speak to your people. And those who don't react well to you well, probably they should not be part of your life. So this concludes this wonderful episode on Better Davis, which I had fun researching. And I hope you learned something along the way as well. I hope you're having a wonderful week and I can't wait to talk to you next week. Bye.